Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 6, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. And at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. My name is Stephen Jones and I am the salt director here at Candeo. And hopefully you had a good week. We are gonna be in John six this morning, looking at two stories. We had a great weekend, nice weather, and it was my daughter Isla's third birthday, which was just, it was just a blast. Last year was Frozen and Elsa. This year was all of the princesses, like literally all of them. It was fantastic, just a wonderful. My favorite present that she asked for was a watch. She wanted a straight up watch that she's been wearing around all weekend, a unicorn watch. And so I asked her, Isla, what time is it? 7.15. I'm like, 
you don't know anything. So that was my weekend, which was great. Um, like I said, John 6 is where we're going to be at, looking at two of the seven signs. So John in his gospel is recording seven signs that are to show us, to reveal to us that Jesus is the Son of God and lead us to belief. So we're looking at two of those this morning. Now, I think we can all agree that COVID is the worst and it's been horrible, but I've been trying to like over the last nine months just cultivate optimism throughout the whole thing. And one of my favorite things that I've been seeing over the course of the last nine months are these stories of people, of organizations that face challenges and then just come up with a completely unexpected way to solve that problem. So you've got restaurants figuring out unique and unexpected ways to get food to people or have people into their restaurants. You have families doing family reunions on Zoom, which hopefully that stays in 2020. Zoom is the worst. I'm ready to delete that app from my phone. Uh, you have all sorts of creative ways people are approaching problems and solving them. And I love hearing all these stories. But by far my favorite one over the last nine months is what the UFC did. Ultimate Fighting Championship. So Dana White, the president, as all of the sports groups and everything are trying to figure out how to solve this problem of having sports. You know, have baseball, no fans, and you got the NBA bubble, you got football just being football, and it's great. But you got UFC, and they're like, okay, we're going to have fights because everybody needs fights. And so Dana White, the president, he rented out an entire island. Back in April, he's just like, you know what? I know what to do unexpected solution, I will rent an entire island. And so that's what he did. They had like 12 fights on it between April and May. People loved it. It was a hit. UFC is growing in popularity because of it. Unexpected solution to a huge problem and challenge. But here's the reality. All throughout our lives, we face problems. We face challenges. We face uncertainties. And it is so easy for those to feel overwhelming, for those to feel daunting, and so often when we face these obstacles, there isn't a clear path forward. There's no like clear way that we can see like the solution that's going to come to bring all of this together. What do we do when we face problems that don't have a clear solution? What do we do? What do we do when we face uncertainties in our life that are daunting and overwhelming? We're going to look at two stories this morning from the life of Jesus. And in it, the disciples will face problems. They are both, in both stories, they will face a problem that is overwhelming. That's a daunting challenge that the disciples are facing it. And in the midst of that, that problem is met with an unexpected solution from Jesus. Two stories with two problems and two unexpected solutions. So we're going to look at these two stories. And we're going to keep coming back to this question over and over again this morning. Where in your life right now are you facing a challenge that you need to trust God in even if you can't clearly see the solution? Where in your life is there uncertainty, a daunting challenge that even if you can't see the solution with clarity, you need to trust God in? Where? Where this week? Where today? Where this morning? Where this year? So what we're going to do is we're going to first look at what these signs were. Then we're going to ask, what do they mean? And then third, how can we trust God when we are facing uncertainties without clear solutions to them? So that's what we're doing, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. The first sign is that it's actually the fourth sign. The first story for this morning, though, is the feeding of the 5,000. It starts this way. It says in verse 1, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. 
Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. So think about this scene, the disciples, we are told in the other gospel accounts that they've been doing ministry with Jesus, that they're at this point tired from teaching ministry. So they cross the Sea of Galilee. They hike up this mountain to hopefully get some rest, some rejuvenation. And not far behind them is just thousands of people. Just this crowd marching up this mountain to follow Jesus. They've seen the signs, they've seen the healings, and they're curious, they're intrigued. They genuinely want to, some genuinely want to know who he is. So they are hiking up this mountain. And this is what happens, verse four. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. So they're on this mountain, hopefully about to get some good rest and rejuvenation. Jesus looks up and they see just thousands of people hiking up on their heels. And Jesus filled with compassion is like, man, these people need food. These people need to eat. If we send them back, they might collapse is what some of the other authors say. Or or if they say here, they're going to be famished. Like they need food. We need to get them food. So he gives this test to the disciples. He like throws this problem into the laps of the disciples. So he looks at Philip and he says, hey, Philip, how would you feed them? What would you do to feed these people, Philip? And Philip's like, um, okay, we're on a mountain. Verse seven, he says, look, 200 denarii worth of bread. Wouldn't it be enough for each of them to have a little? Like Philip does what each of us would do. Think about the logical way to feed people. Well, we could either make the bread, which I don't think that that is a reasonable solution, or we could buy it. But Jesus, that's going to cost so much money. A denarii is a day's wage. So this is the equivalent of like 10 months wages here. 10 months wages isn't going to even be enough to give any, even a bit of bread to everybody. Philip's like, I don't know what we're going to do. And so then in comes the other disciples trying to help Philip out, try to figure out this problem. And Andrew suggests this. Andrew brings a boy up in verse eight. He says, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? This isn't in the story, but I'm just imagining like the sarcastic comments from the other 11 disciples at this point. Like, Good job, Andrew. You figured it out. 5,000 men, women, and children. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Woo, problem solved. Not, not at all, Andrew. Why would you even bother? Like, that is such a little solution. Like, do you not realize how big of a problem we're facing, Andrew? Like, why would you even bother telling us that there's five loaves and two fish? And Andrew, like, maybe he's embarrassed when he says, like, I, I know these are, like, what are these for so many? Like, it's like, okay, that is nothing compared to the problem that we're facing. And so you can just imagine this scene unfolding where now the disciples have done ministry. They cross over the Lake of Galilee. You think like I get in the boat and it's like, okay, finally I can let a load off. You get to the other side. You know that you're going to rest. You get up this mountain and the disciples, when they turn and see the crowds coming, are filled with dismay. Like, oh my goodness, like here we go again. And then to add on that, Jesus saying, hey, how are we going to feed them? And you could just sense the disciples like, how is this our problem? They're the ones that followed us up the mountain. How is this our responsibility? But there's probably an aspect of them that they're like, we know how desperate these people are for Jesus. Like maybe it is our responsibility. And they're just in this tumultuous moment where they're in a predicament. 
How are we going to feed thousands of people? Thousands of people up in this mountain. So Jesus then steps in, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. In addition to that were women and children. Some scholars estimate that we're looking at 20,000 people sitting on this mountain. And you wonder, like, are the disciples thinking at this moment, like, you want us to have them sit down, Jesus? It's like that command that you have to hear twice. Like, no, really, like, have them sit down. And it's like, okay, from the vantage point of the disciples, are they thinking, is this the time Jesus isn't going to come through? Like, you have to remember, they don't have the Bible. They don't have veggie tales. They don't know that Jesus can do this within the realm of his powers. Like, all they've seen is water into wine. Some people get healed. And they maybe are thinking at this point, like, man, is this the moment when we realize that Jesus is actually a fraud? Like, is this the moment that he's not going to come through? But they have the people sit down. Jesus takes the boy, gets his five loaves, two fish, and he does this, verse 11. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. What? Like, imagine that. Imagine that. You're the disciples. Jesus tells you to have the people sit down. You bring the loaves. You bring the fish. Jesus holds them up, gives thanks. And maybe it's like they're in a basket and then the basket starts getting passed. And the disciples are kind of standing back watching. It's like there's one loaf, two loaves, three loaves, four loaves, five loaves. All right, that's it. The other 19,995 are without food today. But then like the sixth loaf comes out and then the seventh loaf comes out, then the eighth loaf comes out and then the hundredth, then the thousandth, then the two thousandth. And you just get this like rumbling excitement in the crowd as people are beginning to realize what is happening before their eyes, that Jesus is feeding thousands of people with virtually nothing. Five loaves is virtually nothing compared to 20,000 people who need to eat. And look at this, so much so that they all had as much as they wanted. And then verse 10, 12, when they were full, his disciples, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Like there is an opportunity for some of the bread to be wasted in this situation. You start with five and there's the potential that you could waste some. It's like, hey, go collect it. Like we got to get the extras. We don't want to waste anything. Jesus provides an abundance out of virtually seemingly nothing. 12 basketfuls. Could you imagine just the wonder and awe and just astonishment of the disciples in this moment? We saw the five loaves. We saw we had nothing. We felt the tension and the predicament of the moment. And yet we saw basket after basket being passed and loaf after loaf and fish after fish being pulled out. And now we're sitting with 12 basketfuls of food. Just astonished, amazed. This is incredible. It's, it's the greatest miracle that they'd ever seen in their life. And the people react the way you would expect them to react. Verse 14, when the people saw this sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come. They had been waiting for this Messiah, waiting for the one that Moses had promised that there would be a prophet raised up like him. And they're like, this is it. Let's make him king. Verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people in amazement at what Jesus had accomplished were like, that's our king. 
He'll free us from Roman occupation. Let's make him king right now. Jesus withdraws though, but the day isn't over. Jesus withdraws, the disciples collect the leftovers, and then they begin to head back down the mountain to the sea. And now it's evening, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. So this is not an unusual scene or scenario for the disciples. They're seasoned fishermen, many of them, veterans. They would have been fishing in the evening many times. It would have been dark before. This is nothing new. But as the night progresses, a storm comes up. Verse 18, a high wind arose and the sea began to churn. Now, even for an experienced fisherman, this is not the situation you want to find yourself in. Pitch black, high wind, the sea is churning, waves are coming. And then to add on that, exhaustion is beginning to set in, verse 19, after they had rowed about three or four miles. Now, I don't know how long it takes to row three or four miles in a sea with high wind, but I'd imagine you'd be pretty exhausted. Like, does a half hour go by, an hour, two hours? Like, these disciples are on the ocean in a very dire situation. It has gone from a normal part of their life to a bad situation to a very bad situation. And now they are in the middle of a sea, in the middle of the night, rowing for miles on miles in a horrible situation. Then to make matters worse in the eyes of the disciples, verse 19 continues. So they rowed about three or four miles. Then they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat and they were afraid. Now again, put yourself in the vantage point of the disciples here. You are on a boat. It is pitch black. There are tall Scary waves, wind is blowing, you are exhausted. And then in the distance, you see a figure moving towards you. You are in a sea that is seven miles wide and 13 miles long. There should be nobody out there. And this figure is coming and you are filled with terror and fear and you're afraid. Now, I worked in a haunted house when I was in high school and there was always the tough guy boyfriend that would come in. It's like, nothing's gonna phase me, man. And then me and my brothers would try to mess with them and chase them with chainsaws. And it was great. It was fantastic. One of my favorite jobs of all time. I don't care if you're that guy. This is terrifying. Like I am very easily scared. I let my imagination go places. I am the best and the worst to watch scary movies with. Like I just get so like sucked into it. I'll scream, which you'll laugh at, but then I'll like grab you and bruise your arm. So best, worst, trade off. You can laugh a bunch, but you'll probably be in pain later. This is terrifying. It's like you are rowing and rowing. There's waves, there's wind. And then a figure is coming towards you on the water. Ah! Like that's what you'd be doing. Like, oh my goodness, get out of here. Go, 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 go. Like that is terrifying. There's not a tough guy in the room that wouldn't be absolutely mortified. It's like, is that thing going to eat us? Like, go. Like the other gospel writers say that the disciples, they thought it was a ghost. And it's like, of course they did. What else would you think it is? That is terrifying. This whole situation is beyond scary. Waves, wind, dark, strange figure walking towards you on water. Again, they don't know Jesus has the power to walk on water in this story. Unlike us who have known that potentially for a long time. They are in a very bad situation, a predicament. Is this the time the boat capsizes? Is this the time that this spirit comes and just destroys us? I don't know, but they are filled with fear. 
And as Jesus approaches the boat, here's what he says, verse 20. He says, it is I, don't be afraid. He comes, he approaches, he says, it's me, don't be afraid. It's me, I'm present with you. And when the disciples recognize that it's Jesus, when they recognize who he is, they let him onto the boat and they're comforted by his presence in the midst of the storm. And it continues, verse 21, then they were willing to take him on board and at once the boat was at shore where they were heading. The disciples found themselves in an incredibly terrifying situation filled with uncertainty in the middle of the night, waves, wind, darkness, strange figure, and yet Jesus comes with an unexpected solution. They would have never expected him to walk on water would be the way that he would rescue them. Now there is that kind of interesting line there where it says at once the boat was at the shore where they're heading. Here's the reality. It could be that they were close enough to the shore that it made sense that they got there pretty quick after Jesus got on. Or it could be teleportation, which after Jesus had fed 5,000 and walked on water, I think that's within his wheelhouse. So it really doesn't matter. It could be either one. And I think it could be teleportation. That's pretty cool. The disciples were in a bad spot twice that day. No food for 20,000 people, 20,000 hungry people, and saw an unexpected miracle that Jesus would provide food for them. They were in a tremendously dangerous spot. Wind, waves, darkness, strange figure. And Jesus again provides an unexpected solution. He comes to them, rescues them from the storm and comforts them with his presence. Two things before we go on to what these signs mean. First, the last 21 verses have been filled with miracles. And I know for some of you who are maybe wrestling with Christianity, miracles do not fit into your worldview. First, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for coming to Candeo and exploring the Bible and exploring who Jesus is. You have to know that this room is filled with a bunch of people who are just trying to learn more about God and Jesus and none of us have it all figured out. So I'm so thankful that you're here. But second, before you get hung up on these stories of Jesus performing miracles, I'd ask you to consider two things. One, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And two, do you believe God is the creator of the world? Because if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and God is the creator of everything, then these miracles perfectly fit within that worldview. But if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead and you don't believe there is a God who created everything, then these stories in all honesty don't matter. So figure that out first. Determine whether or not you think that there's evidence for Jesus rising again from the dead or God being the creator of everything. Secondly, I want to ask you the exact same question that I asked back when I taught on the water of wine. When I taught on the water to wine sign, I asked this, are you filled with wonder at this miracle? Or have you become so familiar with this miracle that it's lost its awe to you? The exact same question today. Jesus fed 20,000 people with virtually nothing. Jesus walked on water are you so familiar with these two miracles that you are not filled with awe and wonder and astonishment at that? Just this place of worship as you've seen this display of power and glory from Jesus. And you might be thinking, man, he is literally making the exact same point, and I am. But let me ask you this. Even if you heard that sermon, would you say the last two months of your life have been marked by wonder at Jesus? Or have they been marked by distraction and the things of this world crowding him out? I taught that sermon 
And I can't even say that the last two months have been dominated by a wonder and awe and worshipful awareness of Jesus's glory. I have been more distracted by the things of the world than to be amazed at who Jesus is and his power and his glory. All right, what do these signs mean? Now, I've said several times that we have two stories where the disciples face a problem, an overwhelming problem, and it's met with an unexpected solution from Jesus. And the first, you have thousands of people who need food, an overwhelming, daunting problem. How could we ever feed these people on this mountain? Met with an unexpected solution, Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding everyone. The second, the disciples find themselves in a dire situation, on a sea, in a storm, and Jesus comes and rescues them by walking on water. An unexpected solution. Here's the reality. When we face problems in this life, when we face problems and uncertainties in this world, it is entirely possible that God could be working in a way that is not clear to us from the onset, that is out actually beyond our ability to comprehend. So let me ask you this. What problem are you facing right now that you need to trust God in, even if the solution is not clear to you? What is the uncertainty that you're facing this week that you don't know what the path forward is in it? Regardless of how you voted this week or how you feel today about the election, I don't think anyone in this room could say that last week they were 100% relaxed and calm. I think all of us were filled with uncertainty, filled with anxiousness and wondering, man, what is going to happen? What is the path forward in all of this? 2020 is the poster child of uncertainty and challenges. How do you need to trust God in the midst of those? Maybe take it out from like a worldwide kind of issue, but more, even more personal. Maybe it's something as simple as there's a really hard conversation I have to have at work. And I'm not quite sure what to say or how to navigate that. Or maybe there's something going on with my kids or something going on with my parents or something even you'd almost feel embarrassed to say of, man, my homework is tough. What is it? What is the thing that you are facing today that you need to trust God in, even if the solution is unclear to you? What do we do when we face problems? Two things. One, I'd say don't limit God. Don't limit God to a box of how you think he can and cannot work. If these signs tell us anything, they tell us that Jesus can work in ways that are completely beyond our ability to comprehend or anticipate. And second, we need to cultivate the virtue of faith in our life. Faith is the virtue of having a deep confidence in God, even when the solution is unclear. That I'm a person that is just filled with this deep confidence in who God is because of his past faithfulness that fills me with confidence and peace and trust in the present problems I face. We need to be people who are marked by faith and who are marked by an ability to, to be open-handed about how God may or may not work, to not be so limited in how we expect God to solve problems. But here's the question then, what gives us that kind of faith? What could cultivate that kind of confidence in us to face uncertainties and problems in life? We get the answer to that in this passage at the beginning, verse four. 
Now, here's the reality. These two stories are set in the context of a Jewish festival. So in verse 4, it says that the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So the context that these two signs were happening was in the midst of the Jewish community about to celebrate their annual festival, the Passover. Now, what the Passover was, was an annual celebration celebrating what you could argue was God's faithfulness in the midst of the most uncertain moment in Israel's history. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and the Passover was celebrating how God delivered them from slavery. So Moses comes, he pleads with Pharaoh to let the people go. There's a series of plagues that come that culminate in the firstborn of everyone in Egypt being killed when the angel of death came over the country. And the way the Israelites were saved from this angel of death was by each family taking a lamb, slaughtering it, and then painting its blood over the doorpost of their house. And then any family who was hidden beneath the blood on the doorpost in the house would be saved from the wrath of God on that night. And what then happened was Pharaoh then released the Israelites from captivity and it was their moment of deliverance and salvation. And from that point on, God commanded the Israelites to remember, to remember each year with this annual festival, his past faithfulness that would fill them with faith in their present problems. He called him to remember, to remember this great moment of his faithfulness, his unexpected faithfulness. Slaughter a lamb, paint it on the door. What? He called him to remember every year. Remembering is one of the key habits in the life of a Christian. Remembering God's past faithfulness will fill us with faith in the present. Remembering God's acts of past faithfulness will give us confidence in him when we face present uncertainty. But here's the question. Even in the midst of the Passover festival, these disciples and the people, they seem to still miss it. They seem to be afraid. Like, what were they missing that didn't give them faith in that moment? What they were missing was ultimately what the Passover would point us to. You see, in the Passover the families would take a lamb, slaughter it, paint the blood on the doorpost, and any who were hidden beneath it in the house were saved. What the Passover pointed to us to was the day that John 129, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The day when the true lamb of God would come into the world and would be slaughtered, and that any who were hidden beneath the blood of the lamb would be saved from their sins and the wrath of God. Here is the reality. Your greatest problem is that you have sinned against a holy God. That you have rejected God's commands. And that has left you in a state of condemnation. That is the greatest problem you and I have ever faced. But the unexpected solution is that God in love looked at humanity And John 1.14 says that God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came as a human, fully God and fully man, to dwell among us, to live a perfect life, to not just be an example, but to actually become the sacrificial lamb for our sins. So not just a family would be saved by the blood of the lamb, but the world could be saved through the blood of the lamb of God. And when you remember that act of faithfulness and that unexpected solution to our greatest problem, it will fill you with faith to face any uncertainty. 
than any problem of all the challenges, of all the problems, of all the uncertainties in the world, none compared to the eternal problem that you and I faced, but that was met with an eternal solution in Jesus Christ dying on the cross, sacrificing for us so that we could be saved. And when we remember that, it will fill us with faith and unshakable confidence even when we face uncertain times. Even when we face problems that we can't see with clarity what the solution might be. Remembering that cultivates a deep faith in us. So how do we remember? Well, the Bible talks about two ongoing habits. Two ongoing forms of worship that we need to be committed to. The first is corporate worship. That we need a stubborn commitment a stubborn commitment to gather with the church week in and week out, to be reminded of the truths of the gospel through song and through scripture. We need a stubborn commitment to come to church. Second is personal worship. Likewise, we need a stubborn commitment to read our Bible, to pray, to meditate on the truths of the gospel every day. If you fail to commit to those two forms of worship, your chances of not being overwhelmed when you face problems in your life is very slim. But when we regularly remember the truths of the gospel through corporate and private worship, we will be anchored to the truths of the gospel, be reminded that our greatest problem was taken care of by Jesus and be filled with confidence to face the true and real problems that we still have in this present life. We will be people who are transformed into people of peace and, and contentment. And we will be a stark difference to the world around us, but be in a position to be a blessing. These disciples faced uncertainties. They faced problems and they were met with an unexpected solution. We each have had our greatest problem met with the most unlikely of solutions, that God would come and dwell with man and then take his place on the cross. By remembering that, we will be transformed more and more into people of faith, people with an unshakable confidence in God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reality that though we once were dead in our sins, that we were enemies before you, that you looked from heaven with love towards earth and came. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Lamb of God came and took away the sins of the world by being rejected by man and ultimately forsaken by you on the cross so that we could have the confidence that in the midst of our hardest days, in the midst of our most daunting challenges, in the midst of even our small problems that add up and feel overwhelming, that we can have confidence that you are with us, that we can be comforted by your presence because Jesus lost your presence on the cross. God, I pray that we would be a community of people that are unlike any other, a community of people that even in the uncertainty of our world would be marked by faith, be marked by peace, be marked by joy and commitment. God, help us to remember regularly the truths of the gospel 
that our greatest problem was taken care of on the cross and that it would transform us into a people of faith. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.